0: Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, Managing Editor of Liberties, and usually the host of this podcast. However, on this episode of the podcast, Leon Wieseltier, the editor of Liberties, is acting as host, uh, and he is joined by Jared Pollan to discuss Jared's recent essay for us, The Metaphysician-in-Chief, which is about Václav Havel. Havel was a dissident, a public intellectual, and a playwright uh, in the Czech Republic, and he became president of the Czech Republic in 1989 after the fall of communism. And Leon and Jared use Havel as a kind of case study to consider whether or not an intellectual can ever responsibly assume political leadership.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Leon Wieseltier. Uh, I'm the editor of Liberties, and I'm filling in for my colleague Celeste Marcus, whose podcast this more or less is um, to talk with Jared Pollen, a writer who lives in Prague, a young writer, uh, in my own estimation, an exceptionally gifted writer, who published in our current issue uh, a very provocative and comprehensive retrospective of Vaclav Havel and his. Um, his relationship to politics morality and just to a certain extent literature uh, and it's a piece as we'll, 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 uh, that has many repercussions for things that are happening today at last hi jared
2: hi leon thank you for having me on the program
1: it's a great pleasure it's um it's a perfect day to do this to, to have this discussion because it's the morning after the speech to Congress that was the most memorable speech given to Congress since Václav Havel's speech. And I think that was in what, 1989? Something like that. His first address to Congress, I believe, was in February, 1990. Um, then, then you must be right. But that was, I mean, these are two, he and Zelensky are two different kinds of men in two different sorts of situations. But, but representing the same values and standing up to the same enemy. Uh, yeah. And there were times last night when I watched Zelensky uh, and frankly swooned over what I saw and heard, um, in which I recalled Havel and the way in which um, dissidents against totalitarianism Resisters against totalitarianism are once again what they were, at least for a lot of people, 30, 40, 50 years ago, which is the moral instructors of the West. Uh, it's hard for it, you know, I'm old enough to have to remember the enormous influence on our thinking. Uh, of the anti-communist dissidents uh, and the extent to which their thinking actually enabled us to find a whole new vindication for democracy and liberalism. And I felt this way last night, so I'm happy to talk with you about the man who was in some sense Zelensky's predecessor, though as I say, Uh, They were very different. I I can't, I don't know if you can, but I can't imagine Vaclav Havel as being a wartime leader. Can you?
2: No. And in fact, I can't even imagine Havel being elected president of the Czech Republic today. The country has changed so much in the last 30 years. And many Czechs feel the same way. Many Czechs are accustomed to saying like
1: Havel would never be president today. And they're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what? Let's go to. In that case, let's start with um, with a point that you make early in your essay, and it's an important point, and it has to do with the relationship between ideas and power, or conscience and power. Uh, you cite an early passage of Havel, which he wrote in his dissident years before he came to power, which in a very platonic way warned the intellectual, warned the dissident of too close an association with power. Um, You know the passage I'm referring to.
2: Yes, I believe that's from The Anatomy of Reticence, which was published Uh in 1985, I believe.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, one of the things we're seeing in Ukraine now is the extent to which in the absence of power and the means of self-defense, all the most high-minded and correct ideas about freedom and democracy and liberalism can be destroyed. Uh, And maybe you could talk a little bit about the relationship, about Havel's attitude towards power and the relationship of ideas to power in his extraordinary mind certainly
2: well apropos of of Zelensky, i would say uh, you're right they are very different men in many ways but one of the things that i do think they have in common is that they were both very obviously not destined for leadership positions
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. um and the circumstances the historical circumstances surrounding their rise to power um were exceptional of course, and in both cases, uh, and especially with Zelensky, we really got to see what these men were made of and what their values are. Mm-hmm. And it's not always clear until those values are pressed, right? And in the case of somebody like Havel, he was pressed in many ways. I mean, he he in many ways embodied uh, several of the, the central and foundational problems in Western thought, mainly uh, the relationship between truth and power, between mm-hmm. the intellectual and uh, and the system of government. What is the intellectual's role in society? Should that lesson, uh, or excuse me, should that role be adversarial uh, necessarily? Or can, uh, can the intellectual uh, advise the tyrant? This is mm-hmm. a, obviously a, a conversation that goes all the way back to Plato. Mm-hmm. It reemerges in the Renaissance, in the real life of Machiavelli. Um, it's the... I'd say the dominant theme of the first book of Moore's Utopia, whether or not it's worth the philosopher's time to counsel the uh, the king. Right. And it's also the bone of contention between Leo Strauss and Alexander Kozhev in, in their debate. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so Havel was a real life representative of these problems. And there aren't too many examples of that throughout history. So he really is exceptional. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. why he's exceptional is because his philosophy of power and and truth and what it means to, as he said, live in the truth. That was his famous phrase from his mm-hmm. essay, The Power of the Powerless. All of those ideas were fashioned uh, in an adversarial position when he was a dissident. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, in the passage that you were referring to earlier from the Anatomy of Reticence, he says more or less, I'm paraphrasing, that the intellectual becomes... Uh, ridiculous when he begins to believe that um, he can surrender his pursuit of truth for truth as it is practiced in the political realm, uh, which is inherently compromising and requires all kinds of deceptions and duplicities, and that it is not reasonable to expect um, somebody who seeks truth in the kind of platonic sense uh, to ever be involved in in the halls of power, either as an advisor or as a ruler themselves. And then in 1989, when uh, the Velvet Revolution happened, Havel was overwhelmingly selected by his contemporaries to be the first president of the New Republic, uh, which is something that he regarded as an absurd joke. Um, uh, Philip Roth once described it as uh, uh, Joseph K. actually making it to the castle, which the I think... The castle, was a yeah, description. yeah. And it was a bit like that. And it seemed to be the stuff of satire because a number of literary intellectuals were elected to the Senate, um, and, uh, to government positions. And it was something that was unprecedented in history to have so many literary intellectuals and philosophical types actually in parliament. Uh, and so, uh, anyway, not to belabor the point, but what happened when Havel took power was he, he had to confront, uh, the ideas that he had developed as a dissident, uh, and whether or not those ideas were now compatible with his new position mm-hmm. as, as the president of this country. And he spent the better part of the first couple of years of his presidency trying to justify his new position. Uh, and he did that mainly in a book that uh, is called Summer Meditations, which was published in 1991 on the eve of his reelection, mm-hmm. in which he in some ways kind of rolls back the statement that he made in The Anatomy of Reticence mm-hmm. about who is suited for power and what skills you need Uh uh, in order to not only to be a practitioner of power, but how to try and live uh, a life of truth and conscience uh, within the halls of power. And so that was the the conflict that yeah. really embodied after the collapse of totalitarianism in uh, Central and Eastern Europe.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the problem itself. Um, you know, I've, as someone who's been involved in political writing, and with political writers for many years, uh, with political intellectuals, uh, I've often thought that too, me- too often the, the, the condition of power is um, slighted by intellectuals because they feel it's somehow beneath them or that it corrupts them. And we'll get back to the corruption question in a moment. But then the more experience one has with political argument and political d- debate, the more one realizes, well, political ideas are not like poems. They, are, they must be designed to persuade. Mm-hmm. And a political idea, w- w- whereas it may not be a concrete five-point or ten-point program, Is nonetheless it has to be a kind of program because why would one hold an idea of what is a better life for one's fellow citizens uh, and an idea of what sort of uh, state our society should bring into being why would one hold such an idea if one didn't actually want to see it realized Uh, and um, so there is some way in which the, um, the idea that there's something precious, at least for me, about the notion that one could hold political ideas, but God forbid that they be contaminated by either an aspiration to power or by an experience of power. Um, <clears throat> I mean, all political ideas, all political philosophies at some point are also practical thoughts don't you i mean that that's the conclusion that i've come to uh yeah
2: well i i agree with with kojev that the philosopher cannot steer clear of history um uh, in a hegelian sense you have to steer into history philosophy is the realization of history i mean if you want to get very uh, if you want to get that way yeah yeah want to get very high-minded about this you have The philosopher, although he has a duty to the truth and not to say public opinion or or doxa, um, uh, the, the intellectual has a responsibility uh, to the society and to the system of government uh, that that society is organized around. In order for these these truths to emerge through the society, you have to work through. Uh, the system itself. You can't hope to be yeah. uh, to be uh, sort of sealed off or hermetic from it. And totalitarianism made this inevitable. I mean, one of the things that I say in my piece is that uh, in seeking to abolish uh, not only private life, but the privacy of the mind, totalitarianism makes an apolitical life impossible, however much you might try Right.
1: right. That was exactly right. And it's useful that you bring up totalitarianism because for Havel and his comrades, uh, and I, in other countries as well, um, there's no question that the cautionary example of the intellectual in politics in power, uh, and it should be the cautionary example for all of us of the intellectual in power was Lenin. Uh, Lenin was a genuinely brilliant intellectual, a brilliant writer, um, who turned out to have meant every word he wrote uh, in terms of what he wanted to actually bring into being. Uh, And the experience of Leninism and the consequences of Leninism, one can understand why they might leave one with a certain uh, wariness, more generally, of ideas in politics. Uh, And leave one with a more toasty and less challenging feeling for the intellectual of um, staying out of politics and away from power. Uh, But as you say, Havel himself arrived at a different conclusion. Yeah, well, Lenin is really the
2: archetype of the the intellectual who sought and attained power in in the modern era. And uh, as you said, really meant every word he said, and tried uh, tirelessly to hammer reality into shape, tried to make reality fit the ambitions of the mind. Yeah,
1: his theories were blueprints. And,
2: you know, Lenin, of course, there's a a direct connection between, say, Lenin and Plato and the idea of uh, it being the responsibility of an intellectual vanguard to organize society for everybody else. Right. But it's not only that, it, it goes to this idea of... You know what is our conception of the state what is the state's responsibility mm-hmm. is it the job of the state simply to be a kind of um administrative entity that should protect property rights and should secure uh, secure safety and, and protect people um and then that's about it or is it the job of the state to legislate reason to be a kind of brain for the society like right, to educate the population right, right yeah there. Um, and that the idea that this, yeah, the state is a kind of brain and it sort of legislates reason out into the society and the society is raised up by the, um, by the, uh, the intellectual responsibilities of, of leaders. And that's a very different way of thinking about politics, certainly in the United States where, uh, people not only have an inherent distrust of government, but people's view of government and, uh, the government itself has always been relentlessly
1: anti-intellectual. Uh, the number of that's the- certainly true, though we are learning at least from uh, the radical right that whereas they have an insane distrust of government, they also have an insane confidence in the presence of loony ideas in government. Um, yeah, indeed, and you can count probably
2: on one hand the number of true intellectuals that have ever been president, you know, the some of
1: the oh, that's certainly true,
2: yes, uh, and um. But yes, totally true. But, but apropos of that, you know, so I think Havel understood that, uh, he understood the risk. He was very skeptical of what Karl Popper called holistic social engineering. Mm-hmm. The idea of using human beings in a kind of experimental manner, uh, like laboratory rats. And um, Havel understood that uh, his ambitions for what he called a kind of metaphysical order or a higher order um, to which we have to connect ourselves, um, uh, that had potentially very dangerous implications for the role mm-hmm. of the state. Mm-hmm. Is it really the state's responsibility to legislate you know, metaphysical truths? Um, right. And we've seen you know, what can happen as a result of that. And so uh, what Hava was trying to, to work towards, I think, was more of a, a collective majoritarian um, uh, raising of the society's consciousness Um, that would eventually uh, manifest itself in its institutions. I think Havel believed that good people made good institutions and not the other way around, Mm -hmm. which was Mm -hmm. not the case for somebody like Lenin.
1: Yeah, yes, that's right. That's right. And the irony, of course, was that um, Havel's own, in the case of Havel, his own greatest talents obviously lay not in the sphere of governance or politics but in the sphere of thought and culture and um, what shall we call it we'll call it democratic pedagogy if you want mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah I think I think that the um, if you know we are now in our debate here and in Europe I mean in the states and also in Europe there is uh, a kind of contest taking place between, between let's call it between technocracy and um and philosophical government um you see this you know the only the only options on offer seem to be um technocracy people you know a managerial bureaucratic class uh so you can call it a deep state, which is you know, the curse, the, the pejorative way of discussing it, um, on the one hand. And then there is the idea that government should actually every day embody certain values and affirm them and vindicate them and teach them to the public. And what matters is that the president have the right ideology and never mind questions of, 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 of competence. Uh, it, yeah,
2: yeah, and the question, of course, being can the can the state hold up um, even under the presence of, of an executive who doesn't necessarily share those
1: those values? That's um, right. That's yeah. right. I mean, the truth is, it's a it's a ridiculous choice because uh, government needs to draw from both wells. Obviously, obviously, the you know the hatred of technocracy that flies under the name, under the flag of populism, uh, is to a large, is to some extent, even to a large extent, a kind of anti-intellectualism, which has gotten worse and worse, certainly in American politics. Um, And it's Havel is the perfect test case of what the appropriate combination of these approaches, of these mentalities, would be for a successful government
2: yes and one thing that havel found especially odious is this idea of anonymous mechanized power mm-hmm. uh, the idea that there are these sort of invisible forces that govern people's lives every day and it kind of uh, diminishes or beats down their their capacity for for self-conscious thought and and to act in good faith with one another of course, uh, life under totalitarianism was a great example of that because the Soviet-style uh, uh, state communism uh, micromanaged every aspect of people's lives such that they had very little sense of their social bonds and their connections outside of their relation to the state. And you know, Havel talked about the parallel polis, this idea that there are all sorts of values and connections and institutions that exist outside the state that have to be mm-hmm. stable in order for a competent society to exist you can't expect the state to legislate everything and this can be anything from like you know uh, community centers to church groups to like little league you know football yeah. games and stuff like that so that if the state does collapse there's something there for people
1: to brace themselves and uh i was thinking, and yet and yet with all the faith that one has in civil society and all the admiration that one has for civil society the fact is that civil society cannot do the work of government and you you know one of sometimes i think that the most important feature of the american government is not who the president is or which party is in power but just the sheer size of it you remember james burnham uh, James Burnham wrote his book, The Managerial Revolution, in which he tried to show or showed that the uh, that America and the Soviet Union, that, that our governmental systems, our systems of power, are actually more alike than we think because they both involve vast bureaucracies and technocracies and so on. And so the question becomes, in the light of Havel's uh perfectly admirable insistence upon humaneness and humanity as an essential quality of government. Can governments this size, can be technocracies and bureaucracies, can they be humane or they, or must they degenerate into these faceless, uh, machines of power, uh, etc etc cetera, et cetera. i i don't have an answer to that question but Havel was clearly troubled by it and so should we be right and and
2: uh he, Havel, i think understood very well that uh the nature of anonymous bureaucratic power is to domesticate the conscience such that it has only so, right. so much wiggle room in order to make a you know a true uh judgment um but uh I was thinking about this recently in relation to the new Adam Curtis documentary about the collapse of the Soviet Union. I'm not sure uh-huh. if, if you've heard about it. I haven't it. seen it, I've heard about it. Yeah. Uh it's it's excellent. But one of the things that you see in that documentary <clears throat> is that because the um the the state's control over the society was so great and it, it penetrated down even to the deepest levels of people's everyday lives, that the moment the central command broke down. People had no sense of conscience. They had no sense of personal responsibility, and they immediately started looting all their institutions uh, because there yeah. was no, there was no social cohesion that existed among people outside of their relationship to the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, it's not only the the sort of philosopher king in this case who might be constrained by the anonymous bureaucratic forces that are exercised in the halls of power, but it it's the rest of the
1: society also faces that same challenge. To what extent? Yeah, I was reminded of this, actually, something, a, 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 a related thought. Last night when Zelensky in his speech said that the Russians are still poisoned by the Kremlin mm. and that distinction he made between the Kremlin and the people of Russia was, regardless of its analytical precision, is a little bit, r- reminds me of what you're saying now, which is that, that a a population needs to have moral and spiritual and intellectual resources for which it's not indebted to the government.
2: Yes. Well, Russia is a very peculiar nation, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's the great state nation, you know, and, and always, power has always been autocratic and it's always been centralized and, uh, uh, remains that way to this very day. And, uh, You know, some of the things that happened in in Russia after the collapse of communism in the 90s also happened in in Czechoslovakia. Um, Mm -hmm. People went into business for themselves. They sold a lot of state industries to themselves. They looted their Mm -hmm. institutions. So there was plenty of of, um, uh, dishonesty uh, to go around in the 90s. It was a very wild time. But uh, Havel, I think, was... Uh, uh, an inspiring and a soothing presence at that time because so few uh, leaders that emerged in the post communist uh, landscape in Central and Eastern Europe had anything even remotely resembling the level of integrity and conscience that he had. Yeah. Uh, and know. I, you know, it might, this might be a little, um, I don't know, this is a reading history backwards, uh, but I think one of the reasons why the Czech Republic has fared uh, quite well in the post-communist world and has done considerably better than a lot of the other post-communist countries is because Havel was at the helm. So to Mm -hmm. speak in those early years in the nineties,
1: uh, there's no question that Havel was the rare political leader who owed his charisma to his conscience, uh, which is a very rare and extraordinary phenomenon. But as you write in your essay, and I remember at the time thinking similar thoughts myself sometimes that uh, in, in his time he had critics, some of them quite prominent Czech writers and thinkers, who accused him of purism, who said that, that he had an inappropriate notion, he had a notion of individual moral purity that had no place in politics and government, um, and two especially
2: poignant critics were were uh, Joseph Brodsky, uh, who yeah. was who was much more constructive in his criticism than say, he was than Mil-
1: Kundera. Yeah,
2: Kundera was very sort of nasty and cold about it.
1: Yes, yes, yes. As far as Kundera was concerned, the wrong Czech writer made it to the top. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, yes, there were. And, you know, in a way, these people in this debate, they were dealing with the sort of questions that Niebuhr and Trilling and Berlin and an earlier generation had dealt with in the discussion of what came to be known as moral realism. Mm. Uh, Niebuhr is a specially powerful instance of someone who obviously believed in the, in the centrality of the spirit and in the integrity of the spirit, but had a very, very lively understanding, not only of the needs of power, but of the potential of power to do good. Uh, And these were questions that Havel and Joseph and Brodsky and Kundera were, these were the questions they were debating. Um, Finally, when the Czech Republic broke up, I remember thinking, and others thought too, that maybe this was some sort of refutation of Havel's belief in the in conscience as um, an adequate instrument of government. And when I say that the people had critical thoughts about this, obviously they were not thinking that. Therefore, they were not thinking that. Therefore, Machiavelli had it right. Mm. Uh, I want to read a passage from a a really magnificent passage from your piece so that we can discuss it. Uh, Here we are, and that's actually a passage that begins your discussion of the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, So, okay, very few people anticipated that a crabbed and revanchist Russia could once again come under the rule of one man, rebuild a pact in its sphere of influence And strike out against the West. But now that all this has transpired, the view that conscience can suffice as a guiding force in world affairs without the robust assistance of power, and that a, quote, rules-based international order, close quote, can act as a deterrent for those who clearly have no conscience is unrealistic to the point of naivete. Perhaps naivete is the occupational hazard of conscience. In any event, the campaign for an increased role for conscience is certainly necessary, but it is dangerous to believe that it is sufficient. I must tell you, there's a lot of wisdom in that passage. I congratulate you on it. Oh, uh, um, well,
2: I'd, I'd, uh, it's true. I mean, if, you, if you're faced with a situation where um, uh, there is a uh, palpable lack of conscience, in some kind of institutional framework or in some kind of international um uh conflict like the kind that we're seeing in the moment in ukraine i mean what what do you do with people can you persuade them to have more conscience can you pers- right. yeah can you persuade them uh uh for further self-examination i mean to what extent are these things effective tools of uh of power and of uh the things that power requires mainly uh compromise uh and compromises uh as you know certainly not always in the service of the truth
1: uh absolutely although we, we can get to compromise in a minute because that gets to a whole other area of this this cluster of ideas that we're talking about um i think that you know when what enough people may not understand is that when Zelensky comes to Biden and asks for Patriot systems, and asks for planes, and asks for all kinds of military assistance, what he is conc- what he is concretizing is the deeply important truth that liberals, especially, sometimes have trouble with—that freedom and democracy will not endure unless they are protected by physical force, by power. Mm. And not only is there no shame in being powerful, being powerful is uh, is the condition of free self-government, of free self-government. Again, I don't mean to, you know, Zelensky's fresh in my mind today. He had that extraordinary line last night in which he turned to the to the Americans and he said uh, something like, you owe your freedom to your national security. Mm. And he was right. He was right. And liberals, especially liberals and progressives even more so, have have a kind of modern historical problem. They have a discomfort with power. They have a discomfort with it. Uh, and... Um, and Havel obviously embodied, to a certain extent, the anguish of the conscience that comes to power. Would you say that that's right? Would you? Yeah, I think that's true,
2: and I think I think it's it's. Uh, uh, it's uh, necessary and certainly justifiable for us to be skeptical and distrustful of power, which a uh, power, which is
1: not to say uh, cynical, of course. Right, right. No, no, no. Nobody is asking any. You know, we're not talking about the worship of power. What I'm talking about is the is the resistance to the delegitimation of power. Right, and I I think
2: that uh, that uh, you know you you were correct when you you once spoke to me when we were developing this this piece together that one cannot hope to uh, establish justice uh, without power, however skeptical or distrustful we might be of it. We must recognize it as a necessary instrument for establishing justice and peace and safety and security. And
1: yes, all yes,
2: of, all of the things that we freely and, and complacently enjoy while simultaneously being very cynical about the nature of power. Well, and
1: one could even go further and add to that, to add to what you just said, that, comma, despite the crimes and the abuses that power has committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's um, we're now about to celebrate, if that's the word, uh, the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war, that's which right. um, is the gift that keeps on giving, or more correctly, the gift that keeps on inhibiting.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: let's agree for the sake of argument that the Iraq war was a mistake. Uh, I supported it when I believed that that um, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. In the instant I was convinced that this was all a big stupid bluff on his part, I, I retracted my support. Uh, that, but I, I say that only so nobody jumps all over me again about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, even if the Iraq War was a mistake, uh, history there is no timeout in history. And things move on. And if and if the, the legacy of the Iraq war is to permanently spook the United States about the projection, as they say, of American power abroad, then we are making a great gift to China uh, and making a great gift to Russia uh, and so on. Now, I don't think we're making a great gift to Russia because, in fact, I'm actually very... Um, admiringly surprised by the robustness of the Biden administration's um, assistance and support of, the, of Ukraine. I mean, after all, these are the Obama, the, the Biden administration is staffed by Obama people, and clearly some of them have learned lessons of the, the, from the Obama years. But the real, the issue still remains for Democrats, what will their attitude to power be? Is power a liability, a cause for shame, uh, something that should make conscience intrinsically uneasy? Or does it matter, or do we judge power only on the basis of how it is used? And do we recognize it as a condition of the positive values that we espouse? Sorry, I've
2: been too long. No, no, that's good. I'm just thinking about what you said. I'm not sure if I have a good answer to that, and I don't know if any of us do. But I think um, uh, re- regarding what you were saying earlier about Havel's charisma coming from his conscience, I mean, that was definitely not one of the things that Max Weber listed in his... Uh, that's correct. In, in his list of like where, where people draw their power and their influence from conscience was not one of them. That's a very good point. That's right. Um, so to the extent that... Um, that power itself is an expression of, of our better angels. Um, I would say in in Havel's case, he he came to power through truly extraordinary historical circumstances, and I don't think that that could ever be uh, repeated. Uh, as, mm. I, as, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, most Czechs readily acknowledge that Havel would be unelectable today and probably yeah. with, with good reason as far as they are concerned. Um, so... Yeah. Uh, sometimes the circumstances elevate one to, to power. I mean, Mandela is also another example of somebody like that. Right. Um, Right. And they are, they are in some ways anomalies. And to the extent that they are anomalies, they reveal what is possible. Um, uh, when someone like that, uh, finds himself in a position of power and they're good case studies for the, the strictures and the, the limitations of, uh, uh, One's ability to act according to one's conscience when one finds oneself in the in the seat. Uh, yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. I remember in the 2008 presidential Democratic presidential primary, there was a dust up between Obama and Clinton that remains interesting, and it had to do with the proper attribution of of the credit for the civil rights legislation of 1965 and hillary clinton had remarked i think it was in a debate that uh that this was the achievement of lyndon johnson Mm. and everybody jumped all over her because uh they insisted that the credit goes to dr king and it was quite obvious, even at that moment, that the true answer is that it goes to both of them. King being the Havel-like figure in, in this scenario, in modern American history, who really did manage to affect change by the charisma of his conscience. Uh, he, well, he preached, after all, nonviolence and practiced it. And yet, Clinton was right that all of the moralism and all of the loftiness and all of the passion that and all of the truth that King brought to his campaign for civil rights would in the end not have made a difference if a skilled legislator president had not figured out a way to get this stuff put into law.
2: Right. Well, what I would say about that is uh, it would be the... The, the goal, if, if you know, if you're somebody like Dr. King, the goal is to create the conditions such that uh, 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 a president who is naturally risk averse to something like uh, the civil rights legislation would find himself in a position that he could not refuse it any longer. He would, right. ab- he would absolutely have to because the risks of not doing it were simply too high. And all of that heavy lifting has to be done in advance before the bill can be signed into law. Of course, yes. you do need someone to put the signature on the piece of paper and make it into law, but that person well, and to persuade to persuade at least fifty-one senators and to and of course to persuade his colleagues. But the you have to that person has to feel like the uh, uh, the risk of not doing it is simply too high. Um, and I think that that was the yes. case. For, I think that was the case for Johnson as well. I think Johnson felt like he had no choice at that point.
1: Yes, I'm sure Johnson being. You're certainly right. He was such a profoundly political animal that his motivation must have also been political. And yet, this is a man who was from Texas uh, and a man of his generation who, shall we say, was? it wasn't obvious that Lyndon Johnson was put on this planet to bring about a civil rights revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again, I guess... You know, there is no way to do it without both the treble and the bass, right? I mean, there there, there is there is no way to get it done. Um, yeah, I think it's also a question of, of what is the more
2: constructive role um, of of the intellectual in the society? Is it to dwell I mean, in, in what Hegel called the labor of the negative? Is it the job of the intellectual to be adversarial and to be a critic and to sort of poke and prod those in power to, to make Uh, these types of decisions um, and historically have the, have the greatest contributions that intellectuals made to their society been outside Mm -hmm. of power. I would argue that, that they have indeed. Um, um, But there are times at which they, at which they align, but the times at which they align are visibly fraught with, with tension and contradictions and and Havel was a, a supreme example of that.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, we have, we have turned almost into liturgy the phrase telling truth to power. Mm -hmm. And generally, it's easy to understand why, but there are cases when the president wants to do the right thing. And the idea that the role of the intellectual is always to be critical is a contentless idea one has to ask with regard to what, if one is politically serious, I think. I mean, if one is a political philosopher who simply wants to leave behind a system of ideas, that's fine. But if one, if one believes, as we were saying earlier in this conversation, that political ideas, unlike other ideas, have of necessity to have a practical implication or dimension, then... Whether or not one should tell, sometimes telling truth to power means supporting what what power proposes to do. For example, I didn't see anybody worrying about people telling truth to power when Biden pulled us out of Afghanistan, right? Everybody thought that was the right thing to do. and uh, And they supported it. And that doesn't mean that they were co-opted. As intellectuals, or that they were corrupted necessarily, but uh, again, it's part of this this old idea that we have, this Pollyannish, unrealistic notion that for all its for all the dangers of its abuse, there is something intrinsically evil about power and its possession. And uh, the people who fought World War Two knew better. Mm. Uh, I used to think that there were two paradigms in American politics in my lifetime. There there was the post-war paradigm and the post-Vietnam paradigm. And if you told me about an individual, nothing more than he has the post-war paradigm or or that he has the post-Vietnam paradigm, I could probably generate each of their worldviews in their entirety just from that. And now we have the post-Iraq paradigm. Paradigm which makes post Vietnam look like a blip. It actually was a blip. It lasted all five years. Reagan was elected five years after the war. Mm -hmm. Um, But the issue of the question of how liberals uh, and progressives are going to feel about power, I think, is going to, in large measure, determine the domestic dimensions. Of the next of the coming rivalry with China, for example, mm. because if we are not going to be comfortable with the magnitude of our power, uh, God knows our adversary certainly is. Yes, indeed,
2: I think that's very true. I don't think yeah. the I don't think the Chinese Communist Party suffers from the same um, agonized conscience <laughs> with relation to their no, own. No, they
1: don't. Before they, before they, before they, you know fire a missile or fly across the border into Taiwanese waters, they don't have to stay up all night praying to the ghosts of, of country Joe and the fish. Uh, yeah. They really don't. Or should I say plastic people of the universe? Um, well, I have to say in this, in this, uh, in this, uh,
2: debate about the, you know, the, the nature of power, I am uh, very much on the side of uh that power should be distrusted um Mm -hmm. uh sort of intrinsically i think it's power rots the mind Mm -hmm. rots the conscience and i think one can only be expected to be in power for so long until your mind is infested with scorpions and uh that's why we have term limits i guess
1: that's certainly true that's a very fine point jared that's right i mean when we talk about power there are, power comes in many forms and in many arrangements. And obviously the moral evaluation of power depends on what arrangement of power we're talking about.
2: Yes. And I, I think fa- there's a certain aesthetic revulsion that comes along with that as well. <laughs> Maybe just my, my, uh, my sensibilities, but I've always been, I, I think uh, anti-authoritarian in my, in my, uh, in my tendencies and I, I tend to distrust power, um, uh, for its own sake, which, of course, is not to say that, uh, again, to go back to what we were saying earlier, that um, power is not necessary to establish justice. Of course it is. But um, uh, one can uh, cannot afford to be uh, either cynical or naive about this. That's uh, right. That's yeah. absolutely right. That's and, absolutely right. And I think what you said, it's interesting that you mentioned um, uh, Trilling's idea of moral realism, because this morning, actually, Uh, I was reading your introduction to the moral obligation to be intelligent, the collection of Trilling's essays.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I just want to tell our listeners that this was not prearranged. No, it was not. Uh, but I, I, I visited
2: that because perhaps, you know, we're on the same wavelength here as far as moral realism is concerned. I think that that is a a constructive balance, uh, in the appropriate response, um, in terms of how we are going to view power, uh, and,
1: uh what can be expected of people in positions of power. I I will tell you just to be absolutely helpful that I think you are, uh, your aestheticism is misplaced in this realm. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it is not the obligation of politics or government or power to be in any way beautiful. Uh, It really isn't. Um, If you were referring to The danger that the misuse of power, or as other people might call it, the natural use of authoritarian power, of the danger that it poses to the imagination and to the freedom of the imagination, that is, God knows, a very legitimate concern. And one of the the cautions against the worship of power, obviously, has to be uh, the threat that power can pose to the freedom of the imagination and the freedom of the mind. But otherwise I'm not sure, uh, you know, there's, I, I know that uh, the halls of Congress are homely and even hideous. And, uh, but I'm not sure one goes there for anything else.
2: <laughs> no, perhaps not. And, and shouldn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, in, in regards to Havel, Havel was, in many ways he was not a revolutionary because he was not somebody that ever had any discernible ambition mm-hmm. uh, to hold power or to transform his society although of course his ideas are, are laden with with transformative potential mm-hmm. uh, but he's also not not a rebel in the sense that he was um, permanently adversarial you know Sartre said one mm-hmm. the distinction between a rebel and a revolutionary is the rebel doesn't really want anything to change. Uh, the rebel is perfectly comfortable in an adversarial position for their entire life. And the revolutionary is actually constructive in yeah, Sartre would have said that yes. in, in their ambitions. I don't know how you feel about Sartre Leon, but oh, well, you can guess, Yeah, uh, but I think, I think in that case Sartre was actually quite wise. Uh, and I think uh, it, in that sense, Hava was a true revolutionary in that he, he ultimately chose to accept his responsibility uh, as the first executive of the, uh, his newly liberated uh, and free country. And had he not, he would have almost certainly passed up the job to somebody who was far less qualified than he was, although they may have been more politically savvy because uh, Czechoslovakia in the 90s uh, was infested with sharks, just like every other post-communist country at that time. And so I guess we should be grateful that, that Havel did ultimately accept that responsibility and become president fraught as it was with ironies and
1: and well that's a very important point i mean i would end with the thought that based on what you just said that it turned out and we should remember this that when in times of instability or of chaos uh when you know as rilke once wrote when what's when what's leaving has not yet left and what's coming has not yet arrived, uh, it is a special blessing and probably can't be arranged that there be a leader who commands moral authority across the society in these chaotic circumstances. Uh, Because otherwise, the circumstances are uh, prone, that they incline towards exploitation by dictators of one kind or another. And it was Czechoslovakia's luck that as things fell apart, there was a man who commanded the admiration, the moral admiration, and had moral authority for his society.
2: Yes. And that is well remembered. If you uh, if mm-hmm. you go into any cafe or, or pub in Prague, you will almost certainly see an old black and white photo of Havel hanging above the bar, I and mean, he is, uh, at least in Prague, universally admired
1: and respected wow. in a in a way that is very rare. Yeah. Uh, as he should be, as he should be. Jared, this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you, thank you for your essay. Uh, I strongly recommend it to our listeners, and um, you'll write for us, I guess, again soon. I hope.
2: I hope so too. Thank you so much for for publishing the piece and for taking me up on the initial pitch. Um, I'm so happy that we got a chance to do it and that we did it in the way that we did.
1: Um, Well, the pitch was amply vindicated.
2: (laughs) Uh, Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Leon. It's been a pleasure speaking to you
0: thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and you have not yet read Jared's essay, it is entitled The Metaphysician-in-Chief, and it appears in Volume 3, Issue 2 of Liberties, which you can find on libertiesjournal.com.